Tonight, Fox presents a world premiere motion picture from the creators of the hit comic book series, The X-Men Comes Generation X. They've got the power. They've got the technology. They're the new generation of superheroes. And they're coming. To save the world. You can't win. I need some help out here, God! Get ready for Generation X on the Fox Tuesday Night Movie. Ciao, my people, and welcome to our 150th episode of Happiness in Darkness, the superhero movie podcast, where we discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse Image, and more. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and joining me today is the man who was with me and was for my very first episode of this podcast, and so it's very, it's totally fair that he should be on episode 150 the one and only charles skaggs hey charles how are you and welcome back well thank you nick i'm extremely grateful to be back on happiness and darkness it's been a long run right 150 episodes congratulations sir thank you. i know what an achievement that can be so it, it's very nice because you know we first started back in the first episode with talking superman the movie mm -hmm. and you know, I've been back a few times since, but it's been a lot of fun. You have such great episodes. You keep having great guests because, you know, okay, I can't really count myself as a great guest because that would be a little too self-serving, but other great guests. And, you know, it's just been such an entertaining ride and you've done such a masterful job with this podcast. Well, you're way too kind. Thank you so much. And yes, it, it blows my mind that this is, a, we've done 150 of these. But uh, yeah, it's been a great ride and look forward to, of course, doing more of them because there's so many superhero movies to cover both future and past. And today, of course, you are the man for the job, Charles, because today we are discussing Generation X from 96. This was directed by Jack Shoulder, who our listeners might know from such things as Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, The Hidden, Alone in the Dark, and many others. So he's more known as being a horror director. This was written by Eric Blakeney, while the score was by J. Peter Robertson. And as this was a TV pilot slash film, we obviously have the, only the budget of what it cost. To put in today's money, it cost $9 million to make. So I, I'm actually, I really want to know about this, Charles. When, when it comes to general impressions, what did you yeah. make of this? And did you actually get to see it when it aired way back in 96? Yes. Yes. So... Just showing my age, showing a little bit of mileage. Yes, I actually watched the Generation X pilot uh, live on Fox back on February 20th, 1996, just four days after my dad's birthday. And this was a very interesting time for me because I had just um, come out of recovering, spending about oh three weeks in the hospital for my first surgery for reconstructive surgery on my colon after my colon went toxic and had to be rebuilt with remaining tissue. So this was something that I almost didn't get to see because I almost checked out. And, you know, being an X-Men fan, being a Generation X fan from the comics, uh, I was very excited about it, even though, yeah, it was a TV movie. You know, it wasn't a big budget thing. And But, you know, to get a Generation X TV movie just two years after the comic premiered in 1994 that you know it was just it was such an incredible thing that you know to get something you know so recent 
on the screen. And remember, just to kind of put this in context for everybody, this was 1996. So we're talking two years after the mask film, one year after Batman Forever, which is kind of probably why the, the look of this film kind of is very reminiscent of Batman Forever, if you notice. It's very Schumacher-esque, I will yeah, say. Is, yeah, as far as the design and you know, just overall general look, the cinematography kind of thing. And it was the exact same year as the 1996 Doctor Who TV movie with Paul McGann, another Fox TV movie that aired three months later. We got two years right before the Nick Fury TV movie, <laughs> which is another Fox TV movie. You notice how Fox really loves these kind of sci-fi TV movie backdoor pilot shows. And then four years later after this, we got the first X-Men movie, yep. which kind of redeems this TV movie that we're going to talk about today. So, so, you know, being a fan of the comics, um, I was excited by it. Um, but what we got, I was a little left cold by for reasons that we'll talk about. Uh, primarily because I'm such a big Banshee fan, as you can tell by, you know, if, obviously our listeners can't see, but, you know, behind me, I have a Banshee action figure. I'm probably like one of the few people in the world that has a Banshee action figure, apart from diehard X-Men fans. And Well, you have to support your fellow Irish superhero, I do. right? You know, it's like I don't have that many to support, so I have <laughs> to support him. So that, that was another thing that, you know, because it was so frustrating because – the Banshee here was played by Canadian Jeremy Ratchford. Yes. Not exactly authentic, but, you know, hey, it's acting, right? But, um, you know, this was, you know, it took a lot of liberties from the comics. I was a little disappointed. There are certain characters that we'll talk about that were created just for this TV movie. They were replacements for versions in the comics. And there were other comics characters that didn't appear at all in this TV movie. So, but what we get, you know, we do get to see characters like Banshee, Emma Frost, Jubilee, Skin, M and Mondo. Although with some noticeable differences that we'll talk about. Oh yes. And you know what? So what I'm about not... you, Nick? You, you, cause I was able to record this. The reason I was able to rewatch this for this podcast, I was able to tape it right off of VHS because I watched it live. You know, once upon a time, we had this thing called VHS technology, kids. <laughs> and thankfully, later on, I got a DVD recorder. So I was able to transfer my VHS tape to DVD so I could preserve it on a DVD-R. Mm-hmm. And that's what I watched for this podcast. Here, you watched the, it differently, right? Yes, because, I mean, I actually saw bits and pieces of this when it came over to Italy for the a very, very brief period. It was like 97, I think, was the time. It, a year later, it arrived over here. And mm-hmm. so I was about 15 at the time. So obviously, don't have such you know vivid memories of this. But, you know, I was a big fan of superheroes and the X-Men and what have you. So I was very excited about this. And uh, re-watching it, because I actually found it on YouTube, for folks, if you do want to check it out, it is literally out there on YouTube. And re-watching it, it is very 90s. First of all, most I'll say it literally reeks of 90s TV shows and, and movies. And you mentioned um, Nick Fury. It's very akin to that. And no surprise, Avi Arad was one of the producers behind this and has been the producer behind pretty much everything Marvel uh, from back when back then to today. And 
I don't know. I th- I appreciate them taking a very bold step in like, we're not going to go with the original X-Men. We're going to literally go with Generation X. So we're not going to give you Professor Xavier. We're not going to give you Cyclops. We're not giving you Wolverine. We're giving you these characters who possibly maybe very few people were even familiar with if they'd even ever even read the comics, aside possibly from Jubilee if you'd watched the animated TV show. But I believe that actually yeah. came after this. Um, but uh, as I said, I... It was good for the most part, but there were moments where I'm like, ah, they've cut corners. There are moments where it gets a little bit creepy and weird. And I don't think we really get to have our characters shine as much. It's very much like a group of teenagers with powers and let's see what they can do. And I don't know, for them, as, like you said, there were moments where the characters weren't really true to their comic counterparts. If we really want to gripe about that, I will, I will say that. For the most part, it was a good pilot, but I can see why it wasn't picked up to be a series. I'm, I, I have to put that right out front so they can see yeah. why this did not become a series. I mean, when it actually comes to that, are you kind of sad that uh, we didn't get more of these? Well, they were originally planning to do these as a series of TV movies. Mm. So not really turning it into a, a, a weekly TV series. Okay. But we, supposedly we would get more TV movies. But we didn't. I'm not really surprised by that because... You know, I felt a little underwhelmed watching it, you know, being such a fan, knowing the the comics potential and not really seeing it realized on the television screen. Um, But uh, but unfortunately, you know, watching this years later now in 2022, it doesn't really it's aged poorly, very poorly. I think it's not holding up. uh, I'm sad to say, but. Um, but there are moments if if you're able to keep in context the time period, the production values, and you know just the limited the limited creativity that you know you can enjoy it for what it is and just kind of like you know it's a, this is a a cute little one-off project and just kind of you know just take it for what it is you know a, a mindless bit of fluff nothing really substantive, nothing game changing, but there are certain things that, you know, as a fan, like I appreciate that just the idea of, of getting to see a live action Banshee, getting to see a live action Emma Frost, getting to getting, um, seeing Matt Frewer, who is one of my favorite actors from the eighties because he was Max Headroom, you know, eighties pop icon, Max Headroom. And just, you know, he's such a fun actor. he, He's very Jim Carrey-esque. He loves to go over the top, and which he does here tremendously. I think maybe perhaps a little too much, but to take him seriously as a villain. But again, you have to take in context the time period. You know, this is the mask era, the Batman Forever era. So there's a little bit of camp still here, and we haven't really, you know, it was it wasn't until Brian Singer's X Men movies started with 2000 that I think Fox really figured out what to do with this franchise that they had. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You, the fact that I think superhero stories weren't maybe taken too seriously yet. So that's why it's like, oh, we'll, we'll camp it up a little bit. And like you said, you know, Batman forever was very popular at the time was the movie to go see when it came to superhero films. So I can see that for sure. And I think it was very much the time when, as I said, Marvel and Avi Arad and such were kind of throwing stuff at the wall and see what would stick. Cause 
folks who was like, ah, oh, the MCU does everything so perfect. It took them a while. They were literally mm-hmm. throwing stuff at the wall before they found the winning formula. So, it wasn't uh, until Blade that they had a hit, really. Exactly. Exactly. We have all these properties that just do something with them and see if if it works. And so it was definitely definitely quite the quite the job and quite the undertaking indeed. So let's then get to our characters. Then starting with our two leaders of our school for gifted children, we have Fanola Hughes as Emma Frost, the White Queen, and Jeremy Ratchford, as you mentioned, as Sean Cassidy Banshee. So what did you make of the two leaders of our school, Charles? Well, as I said, I was a little let down by Jeremy Ratchford as Banshee. For one thing, he's Canadian. The second thing is his Irish accent is straight out of a Lucky Charms commercial. It's not very authentic. It's very stereotypical. Mm -hmm. And maybe you think, okay, maybe because you think every Irishman sounds exactly like the Lucky Charms leprechaun. Um. You know, maybe you're okay with that. But Jeremy Ratchford actually goes on later to keep playing Banshee in the X-Men animated series, doing the voice. So they probably decided, well, hey, let's just get the Generation X guy. And, you know, he kept doing the voice. But um, so I guess kudos for consistency there on that regard. But Banshee doesn't really get to do a whole lot apart from cross his arms and look sternly. And occasionally break up the team being, you know, annoying kids by using a sonic scream at them. Yeah. So, and although he does trade a lot of barbs with Fanola Hughes's White Queen, you know, the Emma Emma Frost, that they have this kind of very antagonistic relationship, kind of like they did in the comic. So that was kind of something they did kind of try to bring in from Scott Lobdell's and Chris Bacallo's Generation X comics. But but there's just a little too much antagonism there. It's a little too, like, why are these two actually working together? They don't really seem to like each other. And not in, like, I don't know if they were trying to go for, like, a moonlighting. Okay, we're going to banner it first, but there's this underlying sexual tension between the two. But I certainly didn't get that from their chemistry. I don't know if you did, Nick. Not at all, not at all. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it was almost like maybe they were trying to do the dysfunctional family so with the two parents who just can't see eye to eye and like, why the heck did these two get married kind of situation right. have kids? Right. And now, and then you had Finola Hughes, who I kind of feel bad for because she was decked out in this really horrible blonde wig <laughs> that is not very flattering at all on her. Now, I actually liked Fanola Hughes because um, as a kid growing up, um, my mom would watch General Hospital in the afternoons, the soap opera, and Fanola Hughes was part of that, so I was familiar with the actress. And I thought that was a, you know, okay, that's a pretty good choice. She can do a convincing British accent or, you know, a little posh accent, and so I didn't have a problem with that. But, um, But again, she's just a little too... She doesn't really have Emma's charm. Exactly. From the comics. She's, she tries, because with Emma, it's a very difficult character because she can be very cold and cruel, but there's, a, there's for whatever reason, I don't know why, maybe it's just be, being a comics reader, 
you get the sense there's an underlying warmth there. She's not completely irredeemable. But I didn't really get this from Finola Hughes's Emma Frost, at least in this TV movie. Now, granted, that's only a two-hour, not even that. It was a, it was a 90-minute TV movie without commercials. So, granted, you didn't really have time to develop this, these characters, but, you know, and you have, again, you have to take in context, this is a 90s production. So they didn't, I don't think they felt they needed to give her any kind of character depth. Although, what we do get is that we find out she had this big connection to Russell Trash, the the big bad of the series, played by Matt Frewer, and that she was working with him, presumably on mutants. It's very kind of nebulous what their relationship was there. But she's like, she was a scientist, he was a scientist, and they're studying mutants. And then um, Trash's machine gets a little too, I guess, you know, um, out of control and, you know, threatening to harm mutants. They were going to dissect them. So she severs ties with Trash and shoves him telekinetically across the room, which he doesn't take too kindly to, which, again, is another change from the comics because Emma Frost isn't a telekinetic. She's a telepath. Exactly. And she could turn it into diamond shape as of Grant Morrison's run in the 2000s. But um, but she's not a telekinetic, so they kind of tweaked the, the comics there a little bit there, too. And, you know, there's the that gives Thresh his, Thresh his, um, his, you know, grievance against Emma. Like, you know, I want to get her, you know, like, I, I want vengeance upon her for the way she treated me. How dare she? <laughs> but it, that's really all the characterization we get from her, I think. What did you make of Emma and Banshee? I, I agree with you because, um, you know, Emma Frost is one of the most, I think, multi-layered characters in the X-Men. And obviously multiple writers and artists have depicted her in numerous ways, but have tried to keep some consistency to the character because, like you said, she can, like her namesake, be incredibly cold and cruel. But also there's this almost, there's this sultriness about her. Obviously she, she you know, exudes sex, uh, which is over this sexual confidence, in, I think. Exactly. In She's the very sexually assertive. And not inhibited by her sexuality. Exactly. And of course, you know, is known for these, you know, almost BDSM clothes, which I think they tried to do here, but I guess they maybe couldn't go over the top because I guess like maybe young kids are watching this and we don't want to go that over were the TV top. TV standards, most likely. Yeah, because I mean, some of the things that Emma Frost wears in the comics are, yes, they almost are, deserve an R rating, I think. Yeah. But um, other Although you did get this really kind of creepy scene with her in Jubilee where she's like, take off your clothes, Jubilee. <laughs> It's like, oh, no, I don't want to take off my clothes. No, take off your clothes. Yeah. I'm just going to and I'm just going to stand here while you do it. That's right. It was like, okay, yeah, because there are quite a few creepy things in this film, which I'm sure we will get to. But uh, yeah, so being such a multi-layered character, and like you said, she also is known to be kind and gentle. Here she just kind of comes across like a stuck up schoolmistress in the sense that, you know, I have to deal with these kids. And it doesn't almost seem like she really is enjoying her job, even yeah. though, and, and here's the thing, they actually tell us, uh, I believe it's Banshee who mentions to Emma, she's trying to compensate for what happened with the Hellions. Yes, and you get that you, backstory, I, did, I forgot about that, you're right. And you do think to yourself, for folks who've not read the comics, like, who the heck are the Hellions and what right. are they talking about? So I, I appreciate them 
throwing in that little Easter egg for those who are familiar with the Hellions. Mm -hmm. But um, so if she's supposed to be kind of compensated for losing an entire team, you'd think she'd be a little bit more attentive. You'd think she'd be maybe not this, like I said, kind of very strict schoolmistress. Because it seems like Banshee is almost like the good cop to her bad cop. Because then mm -hmm. she's like, okay, everybody wants to leave, get out. And, and Sean is like, um, if we send them all away, we have no more, we have no students. So it kind of doesn't work. And she is like yelling at him, like you said, like, how, why are you undermining my authority? So they don't exactly project a united front like they're supposed to as being, you know, both, should we say, masters of the school. Say, so that seemed a little bit weird. I guess maybe they were projecting the dysfunctional parents, but um, yeah, I would have wanted a little bit more from Emma Frost. And I was a little bit frustrated they tweaked the powers because you can do so much with mind control, which, yeah. is, which is Emma's big or thing. To, or telepathy. Right? Or telepathy, yes, because she's literally the, one of the most powerful telepaths in the X-Men world. I think she literally rivals Professor X when it comes, or even Jean Grey when it comes to, to her, her power. So certainly, certainly in that level. You know, maybe not, maybe not surpassing Jean or Professor X, but but she's there, but right there, number three, probably. Yeah, yeah I think she, I mean she can go to toe to toe with them. They're definitely mm -hmm. here. So like she can hold her own, definitely. Yeah, and so I was a little bit upset about that because, like I said, she's a very interesting character, and they kind of like made her rather flat and made like kind of just very sort of throwing hissy fits and being a little bit bit, bit pissy here and them like come on. And uh, when it came to Sean Caster, yeah, he. I guess he kind of is the, the accent grated on me big time because, like you, I'm like, I'm not buying this accent, dude. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm no. not buying it. He, I guess he's supposed to be, like I said, the good cop to Emma's bad cop because he seems to be one who's more hands on when it comes to talking to our students and kind of get to knowing them. And, and he's, what more, have you. he's more of the moderating influence. He's the he's the the he's the more of the fun one because he's the one who lets them go off on their little escapade to town. Exactly. And, you know, grudgingly, of course, because it's like, hey, look, you do this, you know, you're going to be you're going to be grounded or whatever. But um, but he's at least willing to let teenagers be teenagers as opposed to Emma. So they do kind of, like you said, be the good cop, get bad cop in that in that overseeing of the students. Yeah. And so I was kind of upset because I was really excited by saying, wow, we're getting, you know, um, Emma Frost being the leader of the school and such, which was Actually, one of the X-Men runs I really enjoyed because it was very interesting to see Emma, you know, being the head of the school. But uh, the headmistress, uh, yeah. The, yeah. But so it kind of I was kind of let down by that. Like I said, the powers and such, because we do get those fun moments where she tells the cops, you know, gives them crazy names to get the kids off. Like and that, such. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, this is Officer Hootie and this is Officer Blowfish. Blowfish. <laughs> like, Which, again, yeah. extremely 90s. Yeah, it does date this film. It definitely dates it. But um, but but I get it. I get it. it's okay. So that made me chuckle. But yeah, I would have liked more from these characters, indeed. Uh, so uh, anything on these two before we move to our next group, Charles? No, no, I'm I'm, I'm good. Okay, so uh, moving on, let's look at two of our mutant students who get the most screen time. We have, of course, Heather McComb as Jubilation Lee Jubilee, and uh, Augustine Rodriguez as Angelo Espinosa Skin. So what did you make of these two, Charles? Well, these are kind of like our two leading Generation X team members. Mm -hmm. You know, Jubilee, she's a, she was one of the X-Men for a very brief time. Right. And she was the intended by writer Scott Lubdell to be the, the carryover character from the X-Men, to connect X-Men to Generation X. 
you know, she was brought over to the team and skin, uh, you know, skin's a very interesting character because for all the, the hoops that they jump through to avoid, you know, like they, they replaced chamber with refracts. They replaced husk with buff presumably so they could keep the CGI budget down. Yeah, because doing Chamber, as cool as it would have been, would have cost a bomb, I'm sure. Right. Even though he was like the most popular Generation yes. X member, <laughs> arguably, right? Because he's oh, yeah. the coolest. Um, and again, that's what, that was another you know downgrade for this this production. That, or, you know, we didn't get to see Penance, so that was another letdown. But, but Jubilee, you know, it, it was a character that you could do easily, you know, just throw up some sparkly fireworks effects. Um, skin though you know with the stretching you would think that i don't know what the how much it costs to do stretching (laughs) cgi versus say ripping your skin off cgi right but okay if you could do skin why couldn't you do husk at least so a little frustrating unless unless skin just eats up all the cgi budget there's nothing left over for husk but i thought you know as far as adaptations, I thought Angelo was probably the closest to his comic book character roots. And he's just, unfortunately, he's just not one of my favorite Generation X members. And if you notice, he's not really a mutant that gets a lot of run here in 2022. Right. Because he just wasn't that great of a character, I'm sad to say. Um, not that he couldn't be, given the right amount of writing, um, you know, given the right the amount of effort. But here he's essentially, oh, he's the Hispanic kid who is from L.A. And turns out that, you know, he has to leave his family. And there's this very, very, a little bizarre scene where he's saying goodbye to his family and his little sister latches onto him (laughs) Stretching his arm as the truck carrying him pulls him away. And he's like, let go, let go. And the family just like, let go, let go. <laughs> and the girl is just kind of like, I'm not going to let go. <laughs> I'm going to hang yeah. on for quite a while. And so she's a sadistic little kid. I'll tell you. Pretty much. She was like, you know, no, F you. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going I'm to get I'm gonna, not realizing that you're exposing. Remember, you know, mutants are feared and hated by the world they protect that you're kind of like, okay, you're showing everybody that there's a mutant in that truck. Not a good idea. If you care about your brother at all, but, um, so it's just very weird scene, but he gets to, you know, he gets to be part of the team, but he's the outcast within outcasts. He's not really looked on favorably by refrax or, or Mondo who are, you know, the, the team's jerks and he tries to, you know, he gets attracted to this very Caucasian white girl, like the whitest white girl they could possibly find. And he's attracted to her. She's kind of attracted to him, but because, well, Hey, it's the nineties. Um, he's not looked on too favorably and bullied by the local townie jocks in the process. So you feel bad for him, although you find out, well, hey, he's got some computer skills, maybe a little bit of limited telepathy for whatever reason. 
and um, he uh, he ends up having to be the one that um, pl- drives the plot because of his ties to Russell Tresh, and ultimately has to be saved at the very last um, in the final climax of the story. To the point where almost where you think, oh, he's died, only to come back at the very end, and you're you're kind of like, oh, hey, here's his arm coming out of the black void. He's alive, everybody, and you know, don't worry, he'll be back. He rejoins the team. <laughs> oh man, it's crazy. I mean, I know. I, I mean, it, it feels funny just ta- just talking about. Yeah, because it's very cartoony. I mean, I will say right. some of the effects, like you said, this film is not aged well, especially when it comes yeah. to special effects. And um, you know, you oh, mentioned wait, Jubilee. Right? Yeah, I was just I was going to talk about Jubilee here in a bit. Go ahead, go ahead. So yeah, so Jubilee. Heather McComb, I thought, was a fine actress for this production, but Jubilee is Chinese-American, and they cast, they whitewashed the character here. They made her you know, into like they, a valley girl mole rat, I suppose. Well, that's kind of what Jubilee was. Right. She was a wall rat, but she was a Chinese-American descent. So that kind of gave her a little flavor. Her last name is Lee, for mm-hmm. crying out loud. So, I mean, unless you're talking Stanley, um, you know, it's generally going to be an Asian person. And so this was another missed opportunity that, well, hey, the 90s, it's Fox television. And we didn't get an Asian Jubilee, although we could have and did, thankfully, later in the X-Men films. But um, but I thought, you know, Heather McComb, decent enough actress in this. Although she has a very weird character arc because her her whole thing is she as she tells Skin, I want to like she has this falling out with her parents because she discovers her mutant abilities, she gets busted by the arcade mall cops, and the cops want to ship her off to like some big government, you know, mutant camp, which sounds you know, not great, right? If if you're at all historically aware. Anytime anybody mentions the word camp, prison camp, not a good thing. Exactly. And the alternative is that she goes off with Banshee and White Queen to the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters Institute, whatever you want to call it here. And, but her thing is, like, she feels... She's puzzled by her why her parents wanted her to go to Xavier's. So she decides, I need to enter their dreams so that I can find out their real reason. And even um, Angela, I think, was the one that's like, well, why don't you just talk to your mom on the phone and ask her? Yeah, it's not like they're in prison. I'm sure no. she can ask, uh, you know, Emma or, or Sean to use the phone to talk to her parents. But there was the moment you know I mean? where Sean, Sean comes in and says, hey, your mom's on the phone. So do you want to get the phone? And she's like uh, looking around like she was going to be, I don't know, like for whatever reason, she decides it's not going to look cool for me to talk to my mom on the phone. So just tell him, I, tell her I'm busy. But why couldn't she, like, ask Sean to call her mom back later? I don't know. Why couldn't she just call her to ask her, well, hey, why did you send me here? 
why do why did we have to go through this whole thing of the dreams? It just seemed very forced and contrived to connect the Generation X team to Russell Tresh and his dream machine. I thought. What about you, Nick? I'm right there with you in the sense that um, what blows my mind is um, that uh, one, I was right there with you. It's like you have a Hispanic character. Why can't you have an, an Asian American in your Thank film? You. It just seemed very sort of weird. But also, I will admit, I've often had issues with the Jubilee character in the sense I'm like, really? Fireworks from your hands. I mean, I get the name, but it seemed like a rather puny power to me all the time, especially coming from the X-Men animated series. She was yeah. literally the weakest mutant all the time, and everybody was making light of like you shoot like sparkles from your hands, you know. Yeah. So now granted, if it was more powerful pyrotechnics, that's more impressive, right? Yeah, because if the name is Jubilee, obviously you think of fireworks naturally, because right. that's usually during a Jubilee, that's what you will have. So I get it. But like you said, if they could have made it more like, you know, she can do some explosive, right? Yeah, that would that would have you know made her more of a formidable character, if you will, or any more interesting power. And yeah, the whole thing of I have to check on my parents, but I have to do it secretly. And the fact that all these kids act as if they're in prison, then nobody's forcing them to be there. They can leave. And the fact that they're all like, oh. I feel like I'm in prison. I can't go anywhere. And I'm like, really? Nobody is forcing you to stay. You know? Well, maybe but, they thought they would get arrested by the government if they left. I suppose so. Because they're mutants. I suppose so. I mean, but it was just like, it, it seemed like very odd that they feel like so like, oh my God, we can't get out of here and such. Also, I was trying to figure out the whole thing with skin is, does it hurt him when he extends? Because there were moments where he's like, he's like, oh, I'm in pain. And the other times where he doesn't seem to be in pain. So it, was, they were, it's, it wasn't consistent. I agree with that. It was, it was a little weird for what, and I think that's another reason why skin hasn't really flourished as a comics character mm-hmm. is that, okay, you can stretch your skin. How many characters can do that? Kind of like Mr. Fantastic, kind of like Plastic Man or Miss Marvel in the comics. So, you know, again, why, why, what makes you so special? That's so they just kind of write it. They've written him out and don't really do, you know, you may see him in like, you know, a background panel somewhere in the comics. He doesn't really do anything. He's not really on any team. And even with all the mutants on Krakoa right now in the comics, he's not a feature character. So it, I think they just kind of figured out or, or came to this whatever conclusion that we can't really do anything with this character. So, um, and unfortunately, I think the TV movie is a little bit to that effect. The only time he really, his power is useful is when he wraps around all the way around Russell Trash yep. to take that big nasty plunge over the side into the dream void to take him out so okay that's useful right you can wrap yourself around things and so why didn't we get more of that i guess in a very sort of mask special effect and here and it was also some scenes which remind me of the mask especially when angelo is dreaming and he's dancing to like uh, you know latin music and doing the whole you only expect like cuban pete to show up at one point right so I'm like, ah, I guess they took this from the mask. It's like, like a win, a win, a win, the Coco Bongo or something. I mean, what is going on here? Because this is kind of very, very odd. I mean, I get somebody stop me. <laughs> yes. I mean, I get 
Angelo is clearly has the moves, you know, he, he, know, he knows how to dance. Fantastic. It was a nice, fun little dance sequence we got. But still, it did feel like we're trying to homage the mask here because swing music is kind of back and people kind of enjoying that kind of music. So we're bringing it back for you. Also, is he the only one who's being taught like tech skills and how to, shall we say, hack security? Because we see at first like the pseudo danger room, mm-hmm. which I guess is what's that what's that's what it's supposed to be. And he's the only one who has to man the computers was being kind of told you have like 40 seconds to break in and do this and do that. So he's like the tech guy. I guess we're kind of led to believe that he is the guy who knows his way around computers because we yeah, don't see I him. think he was he was the computer guy. And so maybe they thought, OK, we can give you you know, let you develop this skill by doing this. But, um, but yeah, just keep in mind, this is the nineties and they haven't really figured out computers in (laughs) comics or TV and movies. So hacking was, you know, like this nebulous (laughs) thing that (laughs) just about, you know, anybody could do. And, you know, just, with all these colorful graphics and whatnot, you know, and that, randomly that, typing that, that actual computers did not have at the time. So, <laughs> and the randomly typing, you have to love that. Like they've right. done it in so many films are like, and they type like a million things and I'm in, you know, it's like, okay. Yes. <laughs> Cause they have to do show like they're doing something. And I'm going to show I'm going to throw out some unrelated computer terms that don't really, you know, connect to what I'm actually doing on the screen. Yeah, and also I like, will say, yeah, go ahead. Here, let me tell you, let me handle this, you know, you know, ultra cipher code. And it's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's like we have to use these techie things just to sound like we know what we're doing. Right, Also, sound more impressive than it actually is. I mean, you and I kind of poked fun at the Arrow Cave. Can we talk about how bad security is here as well? Where you have this super project you're working on, this chair that nobody's supposed to access. Right. And... Emma, neither Emma nor Sean have realized that uh, Jubilee and Angelo have used this chair like multiple <laughs> times. They don't right. have like a camera in there or something. I mean, I don't know if he if he disabled them, maybe, I, and I missed it. But still, it seems a bit odd that Emma being, you know, such a powerful, uh, you know, telepath and what have you would not know that the kids have been messing around and using this incredible chair. Right. Yeah. It's only when Jubilee, I think, brings it to her attention. Yeah. She literally has to tell her. Yeah. Yeah. So great security. You're right. Um, But apparently this dream chair, which was supposedly this big, powerful thing, just lying around in a rec room in the basement somewhere. (laughs) You're like, oh, yeah, just put it there with the other projects that we've kind of decided to not use anymore. You know, and there's nothing else in the room but the chair. (laughs) Yes. So kind of a waste of space. Yeah, and no sort of protection or laser alarms no. or anything. If, if it's supposed to be so dangerous. Yeah. I Why isn't there you... security on the device to prevent you from activating it without yeah. like a, a key or a password or something? Nothing like that. That's just really sort of blew my mind. And other than that, I, I thought it was a little bit, it did upset me a little bit that they, well, I guess they're teenagers and they wanted to show this. that Angelo kind of 
tends to think with his loins and not with his head because like, oh, I love this girl so much and prepared to do anything for him, be rather incredibly selfish and work with the villain and say, I owe you, dude, you know, and, and, and no matter how creepy he is. And, well, you know, he's um, got that Latino blood, so he just <laughs> has to go for the women. That, yeah, that whole it's like, stereotype, it's like right? and screw everybody else. I have to follow. You know, I'm a hot-blooded male and I need to, it, it, no matter what else happens, I need to literally get with this girl and who cares about the consequences? And I'll even talk to an incredibly creepy guy about it and have him help me out. And like, yeah, I'll help you out, man. No worries. And so, yeah, I didn't particularly appreciate that. But I guess he redeems himself by the end of this by seemingly sacrificing himself. So I guess that's what they were trying to do. Although I will agree with Russell Trash that something really needs to be done about his hair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not, not, not a very flattering hairstyle. So you're not particularly you're not particularly fan of Agustin Rodriguez's hair. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't it wasn't working for him. Yeah, I mean, I with Jubilee, I agree with you. Aside from the um, obviously the the missed opportunity of having an Asian American play yeah. her, she is very pretty similar to her comic counterpart in the sense, like I said, she's this mall rat, which is what we know Jubilee to be, spending time you know in arcades and what have you, and she's very childish, and we know that Jubilee tends to have that more childish side of hey, she's a teenager, but she's made more juvenile than the others. Right. Um. So yeah, for the most part, I got that. Aside from the whole parent thing, I was pretty happy with it. I would have liked more of a bond between her and Emma because it seemed like they were kind of teasing that, but mm-hmm. uh, but we didn't seem to get it, so I don't know. Maybe they were thinking they could develop that more in future TV movies. I don't know. They were probably working towards, like I said, that, that relationship between her and Emma, and I would have liked that, but like you said, maybe if we had had more movies, they would have developed that, but I would have liked more of it because it's clear that I think she's at odds with her parents and is maybe looking for a parental figure, and hey... Emma and Sean are supposed to be these parental figures, but they're not. So like, no, they're too busy bickering with each other or other team members. It irks me so much, but I mean, because this could have been so good. And there are actually people who really enjoy this, but I think it had potential, but they just didn't go that extra mile. So no, I guess no, it's just, they phoned it in. I think, I think the writer, um, Eric Drakely, uh, just, or Blakely, Blakeney, excuse me, just phoned it in really. On the mm-hmm. script, and I think, um, and I th- and I think uh, Jack Shoulder kind of went along with it. Yeah, and I also get you know we do have those kind of horror vibes because you know especially with uh, with Trash, which will be discussed because it did feel very much like Nightmare on Elm Street for certain things, which was um, great. I mean, I had no problem with that. Oh no, totally. But uh, but there were moments, like I said, was like, what exactly are we doing here? We're we doing like a horror slash sci-fi are we doing a sci-fi are we doing a superhero thing so it there were moments where it did seem a little bit muddled i agree with you with the with the writers phoning it in so uh, of course and of course we don't get to see we only get to see buff getting a costume at the very end of this production (laughs) so no superhero costumes at all exactly i mean it was just there was a lot of there was unless you count emma's you know you know kind of bdsm attire yeah, that's pretty much it. So, uh, yeah, there were quite a few holes when it came to this. So, uh, I guess moving on at this point, then let's get to the rest of our muties. We have Randall Slade. Hey, don't be his... don't be slurring. You know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of a that's a genetic slur there. That's, that's not cool. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I'm you know, it's 2022. I... We're you know we're we're we have you know mutant and proud. 
these days. Yes, we, 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 we accept everybody, mutants and, and, and humans. So, of course, we accept everybody. But anyways, so getting to our mutants, we have Randall Slavin as Kurt Pastorius Refrax, Suzanne Davis as Ali Hicks Buff, Amaryllis, love that name, as Monet, Yvette, Clarisse, Maria Therese, and Qua, or M, and of course, Bumper Robinson as Mondo. So what did you make of the rest of the group, Charles? Well, M and Mondo, obviously I was familiar with from, from the comics. Yep. I thought Amaryllis actually did a pretty good job as M. You know, her depiction of the character from the comics was, by and large, pretty dead on. Although they didn't really get to do much with her, she only gets really get kind of, gets kind of a showcase scene when they're walking around the carnival and she's collecting her little boy toys as she's you know using the uh, you know the old test your strength hammer and and whatnot and um, and then throwing down in the, the little fight between the townies and the Generation Next team. But uh, but apart from that, she doesn't really get to do much. So kind of a letdown. And she's a Cer- badass in the comics. Right, exactly. And certainly no connection to um, other characters that we got, you know, in Generation X comics like M- M-Plate or Penance. So, I mean, maybe they could that was something they could have done in other TV movies again, but they never got the chance to because you didn't hit a home run right out of the park. And... Uh, but I, otherwise, I thought she was she was fine. You know, she's supposed to be. She, I guess she was supposedly Jubilee's roommate. But you know, she's the the girl, at you know who thinks she's better than everyone else. She's like the Zoe Zimmer of this group. To use pretty much kind of an, comparison, she you know kind of an elitist snob a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know that I'm better than you, and so I'm going to look down on you. So so even within this team, you have these kind of social cliques. And Bumper Robinson as Mondo, another huge digression from the comics, because the guy in the comics is like a much more cheerful, laid back Samoan. And Bumper Robinson is not, apparently. (laughs) No, it's all. Because this version is, you know, kind of uptight. He's pretty much the bully of the team. Yep. Looking him at, and Refrax very much. Him yes. and Refrax, although Refrax has at least some redeeming qualities. I th- I don't I hardly got to see any redeeming qualities from Mondo apart from, hey, my team's getting picked on. I'm going to go fight the townies because <laughs> my team. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, he's the one that he's, he treats especially Skin horribly. In this, um, so it was, it was kind of a, a little bit of a letdown with Mondo. Again, he's another of the team members that really didn't get to do a whole bunch in this. So I don't really have much to say about him, unfortunately, apart from just that he was a bit of an ass, quite <laughs> frankly. Right. Um, we had a little bit of a romance between Refrax and Buff, who are were entirely invented for this TV movie. Like I said. Refrax replaced Chamber from the comics. Buff replaced Husk. And, you know, as original characters, though, I mean, I thought they were pretty interesting. Refrax was a little bit of a jerk, but only really when he was around Mondo. When he, when he was alone by himself, he was much more likable. And you, you could appreciate his attempt to try to have a romance with Buff. 
Um, there's a point where, you know, they're making out after the Ferris wheel. And supposedly this is when Refrax's X-ray vision kicks in. Right. Yeah. And he catches a look, although he says he tries to tried immediately to avert his eyes. So he didn't see anything, but everybody else doesn't knowing that, you know, seeing Refrax as this cocky guy doesn't buy it you know, hurting Buff in the process until at the very end when all looks lost, Refrax comes out of nowhere and, you know, like, all right, we're going to go face certain doom. Um, I would like to say something to to Buff before we, we all die and apologizes to her and says, you know, look, I, I you know, I, I truly care about you. And she gets this look on her face like, oh, <laughs> so all is forgiven. But um, but we'll never see these characters again unless Marvel Comics decides to do something with them and bring them into the Marvel Comics universe. Or we get a cameo in maybe a future X-Men movie of them older and see if anybody recognizes these people. <laughs> that would be interesting. But, uh, but, you know, Buff I felt kind of bad for because, especially for the actress, because she has to wear all like, these heavy, baggy clothes because she's ashamed that her body type is her powers are, I guess, intense musculature. Yes, yeah, so it's like instant muscles, apparently. Is instant bodybuilder. That's her power, and so she's ashamed of how her body looks because, well, she's a teenage girl and she doesn't want to look like this roided-out um, woman. So she covers herself and is very ashamed of her body, and but which I think would translate pretty well to girls of this era because there's a lot of body image issues that girls face these days. So they, that could probably, you know, be relatable, I think. And, you know, the characters were likable enough. So um, if they're going to be replacements, at least I thought they were interesting replacements for what we got. Although because we only got 90 minutes with them, we didn't get to see too much with them. What about you? That, I think, is the big problem, is the fact that, uh, you know, you have a limited runtime, so you can only develop the characters so much, and you are dealing with so many characters. I think they did a decent job in giving us an idea of what these folks are like, and you, you know, very, very well said and described that. Because when it comes to M, like you said, she very much is that uh, <clears throat> Miss, little Miss Know-It-All, little Miss Perfect and right. she kind of does come across like that a little bit in the comics as well, because she's like, I'm perfect and I know it. And yeah, she is. She is quite the badass and like, and gets more likable in the comics. At first, I was very irritated with her when I first met her in the comics. I'm like, oh, you know, she does everything perfectly. She looks beautiful. She has these amazing powers. And I think here she does, you know, maybe get humbled a little bit, except that they use her, like you said, as the model for the costumes yeah like, of course who's the who's the most beautiful who's the most kind of perfect uh, student in this school of course it's m and you know, with all these amazing powers why they could have used her much more especially when fighting a threat like trash who wasn't really much of a physical threat shall we say but um maybe that's why she didn't get to do too much but yeah. it was a shame because this is a, it is a great character refrax this was very strange when i first saw uh, kurt appear on screen I'm like What's Dexter Holland doing in this film? Because he's like the lead singer from Offspring with, the, you know, the platinum blonde hair and the, right. and the shades. I'm like, well, okay. or he's or he's kind of like a knockout, like a low rent Cyclops. Yes, well, most likely, of course, in the X, in the using the X Men stuff, they want to make him look kind of like Cyclops. But 
I also thought to myself, does he even need the sunglasses? Because there are moments where he takes them off and he's able to not, it's not like he shoots laser beams out of his eyes uncontrollably. So I don't know where he was just like, he, he just has kind of freaky looking eyes, right? So, so maybe he just did it to cover his eyes because he does feel self-conscious. So I guess it's, it's more maybe self-conscious. Or than maybe he thinks it just looks cooler with the sunglasses on. Yeah, the no, no matter what, you're wearing sunglasses because I guess, you know, at the time there were folks who just, you know, it's uh, nighttime and you're wearing sunglasses. And my, as my father yeah. used to say, when we used to find these people, it was like, it's so bright outside, isn't it? You know, and it was like <laughs> nine in the evening and these people were wearing sunglasses. I'm like, yes, dad, thank you. But um, well, you, you have Corey Hart to thank for that. Exactly. Sunglasses at night, well played. Thank um, you. But, uh, but yes, it's true. Like you said, Refrax, I think, t- kind of just plays the bully when he's hanging around Mondo because they, they, they kind of play the high school jocks for the most part when they're together. But we do find that it's almost a part, I guess, that, that he's playing because he has to you know, look tough and look he's cool trying to when fit he's in with, He's trying to fit in with Mondo. So I guess he figures Mondo is the alpha. So he has to, like, you know, be a jerk around Mondo to keep his acceptance. Yeah, because they're doing the whole bro thing. It's like, you know, dude, we do this and that. Because I think at first when he hooks up with Buff, it's almost on a dare from Mondo. It's like, you know, can you get this, uh, get to, you know, make out with this freaky, freaky, freaky girl and see what happens? Because mm-hmm. it was more almost on a dare. And I think... Um, but it turns out he likes her. Exactly. I think Kurt is like, I'll do it. But at the same time, there is attraction. He is attracted by her. And yes, he is a jerk very much, but then of course he redeems himself from that speech he gives before they go on the adventure. I was like, seriously, do we really need to do this? But uh, I guess like I'm going to die. So I want to say, I love you. I'm sorry. And, and it, it did come across as a bit much to me, but I get it. You think you're marching into certain deaths. So I get it, but still it seemed a little bit much. And yeah, I mean, the x-ray vision, it was, it was cool. I guess it was kind of maybe also a joke on you're going through puberty. And so this is what happens. You know, instead of like your voice dropping, you can, you, you just get these powers. So it, that was, that was okay. And buff could have been developed a little bit more, had potential, but didn't get much. And Mondo, like you said, we only get him to see him use his powers once when he touches the rock to go and beat up the townies. Yeah. Other than that, we never see, and that's a really cool power to have. That whatever yeah. you touch, you absorb what, the, 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 power, you get, the, you get the texture, the texture or the consistency of it. Yeah. So, and that was something they carried over from the comics. But again, in the comics, he was a much more laid back character. He's more like, he's very chill in the comics, kind of like uh, a little bit of a, you know, I don't want to say a stoner, but behaving like a stoner without actually being a stoner you know he's he's very mellow so the more mellow version of argyle from stranger things without so much kind of that's a great comparison right yeah like like a if argyle and stranger things was not high at the time (laughs) it was just being argyle that would be mondo perfect analogy uh, well uh, and i'm kind of disappointed we didn't get to see sink who is another member of the generation x team from the comics Everett Thomas, who has the ability to kind of copy, mimic other other team members' powers as needed, that could have been a very easy character to adapt to television. But for whatever reason, they didn't decide to use him. And now here he is, 2022, he's on the X-Men at the moment. So it's a little let down that we never got to see Sync either. And we have a missed opportunity. And, and actually, before we do get to our villain, Charles, what did you make of that whole concept of apparently 
all the all mutants can literally unlock this power to use their mind and and do all this. Everybody apparently has this, should we say, dormant telepathic ability. I mean, what do you yeah, think of that concept? It's like the default mutant setting yeah. that uh, you have a like a at least a low limited telepathic ability, which okay, um, what are you going to do with that? Or, you know, if you're not a telepath. What, what I mean, the best thing you could do was maybe like what, what Jubilee did was sense something was happening. Exactly. That's it. So it's not really, I don't know why this was being taught unless they, they wanted maybe to work on their connections, talking to Emma Frost telepathically perhaps. That's the only thing I can think of is why you would try to develop that skill if you have a just a low level telepathic ability. Unless, you know, maybe maybe there would be like a secondary mutation that one of these kids, like maybe Skin or Jubilee, you know, in addition to their their first set of powers, would have these latent telepathic powers that could become formidable at some point. But there's no real indication that of that happening to any of the team, really. Because I was trying to wonder, because your memory is better than mine when it comes to comics and such. Did we already have the concept in the comics that all mutants do have a secondary ability and they can no, that unlock was, that? No, that not yet, because that was, a, a, again, that was something else that Grant Morrison added to the, the, the X-Men mythos during his new X-Men run. Oh, okay, so that was in the 2000s. So that was, you know, the next decade after this, right? That that, that got introduced because Emma Frost didn't. By this point in the comics, Emma didn't have her ability to turn diamond hard, mm-hmm. as far as her skin. So, right. in addition to her telepathy, yeah, because I was wondering if maybe it was it was uh, it had to maybe do with that. But like you said, if it wasn't even in the comics and it took it was like a decade later, maybe they were trying to introduce it their way, saying. Everybody has their unique powers, but like you said, the default setting for mutants is telepathy. I think maybe would have been better served. I mean, I knew I know our runtime was very limited, but it would have been nice to have had something akin to what we saw in the 2000 X-Men, i.e. having Emma and Sean train with these with these characters with using their different abilities. Like it would have been a nice showcase for everybody to show what what they could do. I mean, or like or like an X-Men first class. Mm -hmm. Where they got to kind of, you know, they're young, they're having fun, but, uh, you know, you get to see them, the, you know, you get to see Professor X and Magneto working with the kids and developing their powers. That would have been made, made more sense yeah. than having like sit in a classroom discussing, you know, projects and reading stuff. May show us what these kids can do. Maybe the budget didn't allow it, and maybe there was something written down of we'll do like a training montage, but maybe cost right. too much. But if not, it seems like it's very strange they wouldn't have done that. Well, I guess obviously it costs less to have them sit in the classroom and wisecrack. So I guess it's like, okay, we'll do that. We won't show these mutants pa- mutant powers off. But yeah. it was a, it they was made a, again, they made this for all of four million dollars yeah. back in 1996. So 
Yeah, exactly. You, no, you can't really do too much uh, when it comes no. to the special effects and what have you, even back then. So I guess then let's get to our big bad in this film. We have the aforementioned Matt Freever as Dr. Russell Tresh, who my listeners might know from such things as Dawn of the Dead, Watchmen, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and even one of my favorite TV shows, Orphan Black. Yep. So uh, when it came to, to, uh, to this character, Charles, what did you make of uh, having Russell Tresh as our big villain? Well, as someone who is actually Generation X, <laughs> watching Generation X, um, I'm a big fan of Matt Frewers. I love his work. Uh, I loved him as Max Headroom back in the 80s. You know, the, the 80s pop icon, the, the guy that was made up to look like a CGI creation, even before CGI. And, um, you know, sitting there as like a this you know, this head in the television on your television screen that, you know, would have these CGI backgrounds of uh, uh, flittering and he would have this kind of stuttery voice. And, and it was such a showcase for Matt Frewer's comedic talents. And here as Dr. Russell Tresh, again, I think they were inspired perhaps by the mask and Batman forever. Oh yes. And told probably Matt Frewer, like, okay, do your thing. Just go as far over the top as, as just go as Jim Car- Jim Carrey as you want. And you can ad lib. I would love to know. I would love to see the original script for this and see how much Matt Frewer ad libbed because I know he can. Um, I know he's got that ability. He was a, he's a great comedic talent. He, he often ad libbed as Max Headroom when he would when Max would appear on talk shows or what have you back in the eighties, like on Carson or David Letterman back then. But um, so I know he had the the ability to do that. The, my my question is, how much of that was him? How much was of that was in the script? But I think the director, um, John Sh- Jack Shoulder, just sat back and is probably just like, okay, just do your thing. Go as crazy as you want. You know, camp is big in right now. So go for it. Go, you know, go completely over the top. And Matt Furrer said, okay, and went for it. Now, whether he should have, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, especially if you've seen him in recent productions like Orphan Black or, as Moloch in the 2009 Watchmen movie, like you were talking about, Nick, you know he can do dramatic. He's been on like things like Perry Mason recently. He's a great dramatic actor, but here I think you know this. He he's just told to play. Okay, it's a comic book villain. He's not even the villain from the comics. This is just again something the show created for itself. So he's not really based on anything. So Matt just probably t- thought, well, this is just a two-dimensional character. I'm just going to go you know, nuts with this because I can. And he did. But I think Jack Shoulder, the director, probably should have reined him in so that you could take this villain more seriously and see him as much more of a threat as opposed to just this ranting goofball who his whole motive is he initially it's okay, I want to fund my research and I'm going to work to make these corporation, this corporation rich and give you all this money so you can help fund my research into um, tapping this psychic ability of mutants so that I could become 
a dream god. That's his plan. <laughs> I'm going to be a dream god. Okay, knock yourself out. But um, but obviously it doesn't go too well for him, and he ends up becoming trapped in his own little dream reality and uh, never to escape, presumably, because we've never seen the character again <laughs> and probably we'll never see him again. So sorry about your luck, pal. Yeah, exactly. And I agree with you. I think Matt very much was channeling Jim Carrey throughout this film. I mean, the the um, similarities between this the, him and the version of the Riddler played by mm-hmm. Jim Carrey are so similar. And in my opinion, just like it didn't work for Jim Carrey, it didn't work for, for Matt Frewer either as this character. Because I have right. so many problems with the Riddler from Batman Forever. And I've actually aired my grievances when we reviewed Batman Forever. Oh, because, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. <laughs> because because it was just it just got so annoying and just and that's a problem with, with Tresh. A when little had, a little a little more a little goes a long way. And it's it's okay, I think, for a character to be you know, a little funny here and there, but when he's constantly over the top, it gets tiresome and you're just like, okay, you're doing shtick, tone it down, dial it back a little bit. You know, it's getting a little too much. And he loves to do this faux Southern accent, which seemed to be one of his main things. Like, okay, I get it. You're making fun of the Southern accent and trying to kind of sound, you know, crazy. But there were moments when he literally has that cold stare in his eyes, which would have worked way better. And, you know, knowing that uh, that Shoulder directed, once again, something like Nightmare on Elm Street, this could have been more akin to a Freddy Krueger. If he'd really wanted to do something, you know, I'm not saying literally do Freddy Krueger, but there are some Krueger elements in this character. And I think that was maybe what Shoulder was trying to go for, because like Freddy attacks you in your dreams... Tresh does something similar in the sense that he also works on the subconscious and he attacks you in your dreams. So maybe he was try- maybe Shoulder was trying to do his version of Freddy Krueger just way over the top and the more comedic Freddy Krueger, not the more scary, terrifying Freddy Krueger. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because, you know, there are moments here where Tresh, you know, he's very creepy. He's stalking people in their dreams. OK, that's cool. You're being a creepy villain. I get it. But again, like you said, he does, he takes what can be menacing in a, in a Freddy Krueger film and in a Nightmare on Elm Street film and just, you know, takes it the complete 180. So it doesn't become scary. It just you're just kind of like watching the screen going, OK, what are you going for here? Because, you know, the, what really should be a scary thing. And I think would have been more, like you said, more effective had it been as, as a more horrific thing. Um, that uh, it becomes more comedic and you don't take it seriously. And therefore, you're not really scared by it. You're not intimidated by it. You don't take it as a threat. You're just kind of like, okay, this is just this weird guy doing shtick all the time. And, you know, I, I'm not intimidated by you. Not at all. And I'm actually was trying to cast my mind back to the 90s where maybe the whole thing of subliminal messages was a thing or not. But um, people were worried about it. Yeah. So it was within, should we say, the the cultural zeitgeist of the time was. Yeah, uh, there was a a little concern that, you know, they would because there there was this thing where department stores would play subliminal messages in their music 
over so try to discourage shoplifting. Mm-hmm. So what else were they trying to project subliminal messaging into? Even there was an actually an episode of Max Headroom that Matt Furrer was in devoted to uh, the this corporation, this fictional corporation, Zigzag, trying putting subliminal adverts in what they call blipverts that would get you to buy more, consume more, and whatnot. So, um, so yeah, there was a little bit of that, especially in the 80s and 90s. Okay, well, then I guess maybe they were playing also to something that was part of the mainstream mainstream culture, mainstream concern, because yeah. once again, it plays very similar to the Batman Forever plot, where Riddler's main deal was literally you know, controlling the minds of Gotham. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of similar. I mean... Uh, Riddler wants to be like, you know, the super genius who knows everything. And uh, Tresh wants to be the dream god, like you said. So there yeah. are maybe too many similarities when it comes to that, which maybe I'm like you're maybe ripping off Batman forever a little bit. A little bit, a little bit, yeah. And trying to maybe do, you know, Freddy Krueger without succeeding. But like I said, there were moments which did creep me out. Like when uh, when uh, Tresh picks up Angelo's little sister and like licks her face. Yeah. More, Do more of that. Make him look like a psychopath. <laughs> Don't make him into the, the, the kind of the clown that he is yeah. in that, that terrible business meeting where everybody farts. Yes. That was like, we did was, not was, need a fart joke. That was the most cringing scene in this entire thing, I think. That, you know, it was, it was like, why are you putting this in there? It, I had that same reaction like I was watching um, the... Um, Oh, the the Slavine on Doctor Who fart, you know, when they would fart as as a gag, you know, like you're you're just taking us out of the show just so you could do this kind of childish gag. And I get it that it was it was Russell Tresh poking fun at this super serious, you know, money obsessed conglomeration, this corporation, and you know, getting his little revenge on them a little bit, but. But there could have been better ways than to have them burping and farting and whatnot. Yeah. It literally kind of spoiled the mood for me because the mood that had been established before was more of a serious. I mean, I'm not saying you have to be, you know, DC comics, super gritty, super depressing, or maybe like some of the X-Men films, which were more dark and dismal. But this was just like it was it, it was in such stark contrast to the rest of the film. I was like, why did we need that? I mean, I get, like you said, maybe he, it's it's um, Tresh poking fun and saying, I can control you to the point where I can literally control your bowel movements and have you fart on cue at a certain time. But you could have done way other things. I mean, have somebody just get up and jump out a window, for example, or I don't know, or get up and pretend they're a chicken or something. I don't know. but um, Which is what you thought was going to happen when that guy gets up on the table, right? Mm-hmm. That he was going to just jump right out of a window, and it would be much more horrific, I think. Yeah. Not played for laughs. And I don't know if you were just like, okay, we got to have something funny for the kids watching this. But I, the one thing I did, there was one effect that I liked in the dreamscape, was that there was a scene where Russell Tresh, like he, like he had fallen out the window in the dream world, and then he puts his hand back. And then the next thing you see is his head pop up and he's giant sized. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool. So do more like that. And I think it would have been much more effective where you're, you're actually being a God in this dreamscape 
you're like in being more intimidating, being more, you know, of a threat that you're like, you, you're wondering how this team of teenage mutants, ninjas, oh, wait, not ninjas, perhaps, <laughs> but teenage mutants is going to, to stop this guy. How are they going to do it? And we didn't get that. There was that, there wasn't that sense of, well, how are we going to, how can we stop this guy? It was more of the sense of when are we going to stop this guy? And, and that's where the story, I think, just fails on a denouement level. Yes, because they also build him up to be such a threat. And Emma Frost is like, this is one of the most dangerous people we will ever face. He is kind of dealt with pretty easily and pretty quickly. So it yeah, was kind of uh, like let, skin wraps himself around. It dumps out the, you know, the, into the void and um, apparently somehow just lets go and like reels himself back in. Exactly, and it's all done. And and I get maybe they they didn't why they didn't maybe go with a classic maybe X Men being like say a Magneto or an Apocalypse or anybody like that because probably would have cost a heck of a lot of money to even do a Magneto or an, or an Apocalypse. Right. But but and maybe they went with their own creations, so maybe nobody would gripe They're like, oh, you did this villain wrong and what have you. And maybe they had more to play with. Yeah. But the potential this character had could have so much potential to be terrifying even if you want to save budget-wise and just make yeah. him the guy that can control your dreams. Heck, look at how successful the Freddy Krueger franchise has been doing. And they've been doing like a million movies at this point. So it's a question of how you write it. So I think that's Maybe you just need more, cl- more claws or a knit sweater, <laughs> perhaps. A burnt face. There you go. Exactly. So it was it was very much a um, a missed opportunity, I think, to do a character like this. Yeah. So anything else on this film before we get to ratings, Charles? No, just for one, don't judge Matt Furrer by this TV movie, please. He's a great actor. Um, and uh, apart from that, yeah, just uh, you know, I wish that we would have gotten gotten to see other members uh, that we got, but you know, it is what it is, and um, you know, it's. It's probably why we didn't get to see more TV movies because it just it really missed the mark right out of the gate. Sadly, it was just another TV movie of the week, easily forgotten. I'm sad to say, and we had to wait four years, four long years, before mutants could be done halfway decently on the screen, on the big screen, no less. Very well said indeed. Yeah, I as I said, you know, we're, it took us four years. We finally got there, and we're we'll interested to see where we go from here. Seeing when it comes to new mutant movies and what have you. So, uh, yeah, I can see why they didn't make more of these because too many problems, and they're just uh, I can. I'm sure we were not the only ones at the time reviewing it. Now, maybe even the audience in '96 was not particularly happy with this, or this, or maybe the ratings were really, really bad. Not that many people tuned in to watch this. So. Could be a mixture of multiple <laughs> things, but uh, yeah, this did not get picked up for more films. So, getting to ratings, then, Charles, what do you give Generation X out of ten? Well, I, I'm I'm trying to keep in context again the the time period, the uh, the the medium being on Fox Television as a TV movie. So, and we did get to see Generation X just two years after getting them in the comics. So that's a cool thing. For the most part, we got a pretty, you know, this is a pretty diverse cast, although there are, it could have been a little more diverse, but for 96, this is pretty diverse. So I'm going to give this 6 out of 10. Um, I'll go with Generation X costumes that 
only Buff gets, but nobody else does. <laughs> Very well played. Well, it looks like you're, we're in sync because I'm going to give this a passing grade myself as much as I don't know if I'll ever watch this again. But it was a fun time for what it was. And with all its problems and everything, I see what they were trying to do. And mm -hmm. like you said, kudos to also, I think, Avi Arad and his team for wanting to bring something like Generation X to the screen right but right with the comics when, when the comics had come out. So, you know, I, I appreciate that. But, yeah, I'm also going to give this a 6 out of 10. And, uh, yeah, and it, I think it might be fun if you watch this. This is one of those movies I think, once again, is fun if you watch it with an adult beverage or two and maybe yes. something, to, something to munch on. It definitely makes – it's one of those Friday night movies. I definitely see it as yeah. one of those, you know, you've got nothing to watch on a Friday night. You have some booze. You have some friends. You know, you can pop this on and you can have a good time during the 90-minute run of this film. Or you bring your mates over and you do kind of like your home version of Mystery Science Theater while you watch it. Perfect. Exactly. It definitely lends itself to that indeed. So uh, when it comes to recommendations, Charles, you know, for those who might have enjoyed this and what made to find out more, what would you recommend to folks check out? Well, as you can see by the comics, the trade paperbacks behind me, I'm a Generation X comics fan. I, I got all their original issues when they came out. I still have them. So I would recommend, first and foremost, a storyline called The Phalanx Covenant, which was the this little crossover between the Uncanny X-Men Volume 1 and X-Men Volume 2 during the time that introduced the various team members. So we got to get the introductions of, you know, Chamber and Husk and, and uh, M and Sink and all those. Uh, it ran from Uncanny X-Men Volume 1, number 316 to 318, and X-Men Volume 2, number issues numbers 36 and 37. We got the introduction of the team, and we also got the introduction of some X-Men villains called the Phalanx, which are have a lot of recent um, revival in X-Men comics. So if you're curious about where the Phalanx came from, this is a great storyline. You can pick it up in the first Generation X trade paperback. So check that out. It's by Scott Lobdell and artist Joe Madureira and also writer Fabian Nicienza and Andy Kubert, one of the sons of comics legend Joe Kubert. And then also I would recommend the first four issues of the Generation X comic, Generation X Volume 1, called essentially like a third Genesis. That was the kind of the storyline which introduced... Um, Generation X team members Penance and their big archenemy Mplate, who has major, both of those characters have major connections to M, Monet, which we didn't get to see sadly in the TV movie. This was also by Scott Lobdell and co-creator Chris Bacciallo, who did some stunning artwork on this series. I highly recommend checking out Bacciallo's artwork. He was he, I first noticed him on Shade the Changing Man for DC Comics Vertigo, but then when he moved over to Marvel and did Generation X, he just he really amped up his style to the next level. It's phenomenal stuff, gorgeous stuff. When you're reading, uh, seeing Pacello in his prime, highly recommended. Fantastic. Well, I definitely uh, endorse all those indeed because they are brilliant, brilliant choices. I I couldn't have done better myself, Charles. You know, you are 
a comic book encyclopedia and uh, always know how to suggest fantastic, fantastic reads for our listeners. So, of course, that is our movie, folks. And if, uh, like Charles, you want to join us to share your thoughts on the movies we discuss here, or would like to take the plunge and come here in person, you can do so by shooting us an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. Once again, that email is happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. Be free to show your support by giving us a like on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness and Darkness, or follow us on Twitter at High Darkness Pod. Or if you'd like to support the podcast and are feeling generous, you can check out the great tiers we have going on on Patreon. There you'll also be able to pick films that are outside of what considered regular superhero movies, or films inspired by comics like Road to Perdition or 300 or I Kill Giants, or even films which inspired comics such as The Aliens franchise, Robocop, Terminator, and more. To check all that out and join our army, head on over to patreon.com slash happiness in darkness. And a big thank you to our wonderful patrons for their support. And Charles, when you're not here discussing superhero movies with me, where can folks find you on the interwebs? Well, Nick, you can find me at Charles Skaggs on Twitter, at Charles Skaggs on Instagram. Facebook, of course, Charles Skaggs in Hilliard, Ohio. And my blog of geeky things, Damn Good Coffee and Hot, where I talk about all the stuff we talk about here on Happiness and Darkness. So comic book TV shows, comic book TV movies, and um, you know sci-fi stuff, news of my other podcasts that I do for Wonderful and Strange Productions, including, well, hey, the Phantom Zone podcast, where a certain DJ Nick joins me. You know, right now we're kind of on hiatus because we just wrapped up Ms. Marvel. We had Nick's co-host on Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast, Rachel Friend, joining us to wrap that up. So we're going to be off for about another couple of weeks, and then we're going to come back strong for our 250th episode as we discuss episode one of The Sandman, the Netflix adaptation of Neil Gaiman's classic DC Comics Vertigo series, The Sandman. I cannot wait for that. And then we're going to kind of be pulling double duty a few weeks after that when She-Hulk premieres on Disney+. Plus. So we're going to be, Nick and I are going to be uh, divvying up the driving responsibilities on that show i'll be handling the sandman discussions nick will be driving the she hulk discussions and it's going to be a lot of fun and i hope everybody tunes in for that i'm sure nick will second that emotion indeed of course and then also next stop everywhere the doctor who podcast where my partner in time jesse jackson we talked doctor who torchwood sarah jane adventures big finish audios and more we recently talked the Ark in Space on that from the Tom Baker era. Coming up, we're going to be discussing the King's Demons from Peter Davison's era. So please tune in if you're a fan of any of those shows. And then also uh, Ghost with the Twin Peaks podcast that do with Zan Sprouse, Nick's other co-host on Gold Standard, where we talk all things Twin Peaks and David Lynch. And we just finished talking Labyrinth. But we had a little bit of a production snafu, so we have to re-record the second half of that discussion because apparently Zan sent me a message over Skype and it cut off her recording of her audio. Oh. Right? So I my audio survived. Her audio didn't. So we have to take the second hour because it was a two-hour discussion. So we have to re, re, kind of re-record or recreate the second half. So that'll be out soon. Promise, guys. Stay tuned for that. Because we get, our, we get to get our David Bowie on, because David Bowie is obviously a Twin Peaks actor in that film, and we'd have a lot of fun talking about that. And uh, last but certainly not least, Drunk Cinema, where Zan, just last night, and I, we just had fun watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And uh, we're having our adult beverages, our adult conversation, and then 
probably in the next month, we are going to be watching Spaceballs. So it would be Spaceballs, the podcast. <laughs> as we um, as we uh, get go back to talking Mel Brooks movies, we talked Young Frankenstein already. But now we're going to talk Spaceballs, and that's going to be a lot of fun if you've ever seen that movie that sends up Star Wars, Alien, and uh, all kinds of other great sci-fi classics. Fantastic. There's nothing else you get this great recreation of John Hurt doing the chestburster scene of course. in that movie. So and it's probably the funniest scene in that, in that entire movie. <laughs> Highly recommended. So we'll have fun with that. Hope everybody tunes in. And then last, I know that isn't enough, right? So I do want to quickly mention that as of yesterday, I was allowed to talk about this project. So I want to let everybody know that, um, if you're so inclined, and I hope you are, DC Comics officially announced their 2022 Halloween special in their October 2022 solicitations that came out yesterday. And it's going to be called DC's Terrors Through Time. And it just so happens, yours truly, Charles Skaggs, is going to be one of the writers in that anthology series. And so I'm going to be writing, I can't exactly talk about what I'm writing, but it does involve a classic DC Comics super team that actually gets mentioned in the solicitations. So you could probably make connect the dots and figure it out for yourself of who I'm writing. But um, this is a big deal for me. It's my first 10-page story set with DC Universe characters. I've written for DC before, and but thankfully I was given the opportunity to, to submit um, ideas for this anthology. Thankfully they liked it, and uh, it's going to be coming out in October, and I hope everybody checks it out. Go to your uh, friendly neighborhood comic store, order it, and uh, help uh, help me promote this thing because it's a it's a personal um, it's a big thing for me. And uh, I had a lot of fun writing it. I would love to write more for DC Comics. So I hope everybody likes it. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Charles. And, you know, definitely congrats for achieving this goal and for reaching this milestone within your career, because it's definitely a big, big deal. You're welcome. I mean, knowing how, how much comics mean to you and being able to write for one of the big two and, you know, characters which you love. So uh, I think it's fantastic. So uh, I'm very, very happy for you. And folks, yes, indeed, be sure to pick that up because, uh, hey, it's Charles Gag's writing. I need I say more. <laughs> I mean, the guy knows how to write. I will, I will, I will say that. And I no, definitely will be getting of course and your i checks in the mail sir <laughs> thank you and hey as i said you heard you you heard it here her first folks so definitely Exclusive, out those. right here on happiness and darkness yes so we're very very proud of that so definitely check out those october solicitations folks because um it's definitely going to be i'm sure a fun fun comic i'm going to be getting my copy of course so uh looking forward to it indeed and when it comes to me for you uh, country music lovers I, I can be found hosting the radio show whiskey and cigarettes where we play today's country traditional country and everything else in between and we're about that visit our website site that's whiskey and cigarettes show.com podcast wise charles was kind enough to of course mention gold standard the oscars podcast but of course myself zan Sparrow, and rachel friend are reviewing all the best picture winning movies in chronological order the other day we finished recording gandhi and in two weeks time we're going to be coming back to record terms of endearment from 1983 so the year 
<laughs> yes, the, the year that Rachel Friend was born. So she, so that there you go. Had my, the year where I was born, which was eighty-two, and now Rachel gets her birthday year. So that will be fun. Uh, Charles, you're older me- than Rachel. I didn't realize that. Yes, I'm one year older than her. Yes, okay. and um, so you're the big brother. Okay, I'm the big brother, I guess. But yeah, and of course, Charles was kind enough to already, of course, mention the Fandom Zone as well. And I will also add, if you're fans of Titans or Doom Patrol, be sure to check myself and Charles out on Titan Talk, the Titans podcast where as we wait for the new seasons of Titans and Doom Patrol, you can check out myself and Charles discussing the previous seasons of those shows. And uh, those are always fun to, to listen to. Uh, Charles and I had a fun, fun time reviewing both, both Titans and Doom Patrol. And speaking of things to come on this show, next time we'll be taking on the 2010 Tom McGrath film, Megamind. Ooh. That's... So it's all about the minds. It's nice to cross over from Generation X to another chap who's got a big brain. That's the course. Uh, Charles, thank you so much for joining me on this 150th episode. It was a joy having you back. And congrats on everything you've achieved and will achieve. And, of course, I look forward to having you back on the podcast very soon. Well, um, you can. I'll be back anytime you want me, Nick. You know I can't say no to you. <laughs> and I just can't quit you. And... <laughs> And uh, I hope everybody tunes us. If you like what our little banner here, please check us out in the Phantom Zone, where we're going to be having lots of fun. And congratulations again on your 150th episode. I was very honored to be a part of the first episode, and I'm very honored to be a part of the 150th episode. So I guess that means I'm coming back for episode 300, right? Most Somewhere likely, line. yes. <laughs> so, if this podcast will be in for that one down yes, the road, if, if this podcast is still alive and kicking, we definitely will have <laughs> you for the for three hundredth episode for sure, Charles. Hopefully, sooner than that too. So uh, that's it, of course, guys. Thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next time with Mega Mind. Until then, stay super. Ciao, my people. Bye, everyone.